For those of you guys watching uh, online from coast to coast and across the Fruited Plains, my name is Joe. I'm the pastor here. If God puts it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. Pray with me. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. Thank you, God, for all the good things that you give to us. Uh, for safety, for protection, for health, that we're even here right now. And, <clears throat> Lord, we, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the peace of Israel right now. And yet, Lord, we also know that apart from you, that there is no real lasting peace. Yes, we, we pray for justice, Lord, to be done and mercy to be handed out. But at the end of the day, Lord, 98% of the people in Israel, 99% of Hamas and those in Palestine, they, they don't know you. And so we pray that you would save them. We pray for President Biden that you would give him wisdom, God. Um, if he doesn't always make a lot of decisions that I, I agree with or like, Lord, but we're told to pray for our leaders and kings, and so God, help him and give him wisdom. Give him wisdom. Help him make good decisions. For our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, those serving at home and abroad, uh, we pray for their safety, we pray for their protection, we pray for their salvation, for the persecuted church. I'm thinking of Leah Sherabu being held by Boko Haram because... She's a Christian. I'm thinking of Pastor Yusuf imprisoned in Iran and Pastor Wang and John imprisoned in China for the Christians in North Korea, for the Christians in Afghanistan, for the Christians in Somalia and Eritrea and in the South Sudan and Nigeria and some of the, the most difficult places to be a Christian, Lord. Well, we remember those right now, as the author of Hebrews tells us, we remember those who are in chains as if in chains right alongside with them. For Lord, for Vladimir Putin, we pray that you would confuse and frustrate his plans. We pray that you would save him. Lord, I could go on and on. We need you. The world needs you, Lord. So help us. And today I pray that you'd, you'd help me as I preach. Help me to say only what you want me to say. If there's something that I shouldn't say, that I fully intend to say, then, then don't let me say it. Just close my mouth. If there's something that I have no intention of saying today, I haven't even thought of it. Well, and you want me to say it, then I pray for a fresh filling of your spirit. I pray that you would give me uh, the, the right words and for everyone here today that you just help us to hear and learn and grow that whatever's going on in our lives that, that might be fighting and vying for our attention, that you just help us to, to concentrate right now and hear from you. We pray this in your great name, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> So we love expository preaching at Lynchburg City Church. So if it's your first time, we love just going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the text because uh, it's awesome. Uh, also, it really helps prevent taking verses out of context. Uh, and it also helps maintain the author's intended meaning of what he's saying. And so uh, we're continuing our journey through John's gospel. Uh, this is the 23rd sermon that I'm going to preach. And it's going to be a little bit different. Now, if you're newer, you don't have anything to gauge it against. But if everybody else, it's going to be different today. Um, and the reason is, is because we are in John chapter 8, 1 through uh, 11. Technically, John chapter 7, 53 through chapter 8 through verse 11. 
And um, the reason this is going to feel a little bit different, and I'm going to just ask you right now, I'm going to let you know, I'm going to make some very lengthy introductory uh, comments to set this up for us. Because this isn't exactly cut and dry, this passage of scripture that we're dealing with, the, the story of the woman caught in adultery. And, and the reason for that is because most New Testament scholars don't think that this story was part of John's gospel. Most New Testament scholars don't think this passage of scripture was actually written by John. But rather it was added to our Bibles centuries later. Uh, D.A. Carson, one of the most renowned New Testament scholars in the world, says, and I quote, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against, and modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or to relegate it to a footnote, end quote. Which is why, in your English Bible, it probably says, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 753 through chapter 8, verse 11. And if you're hearing this for the first time, I realize that it might be kind of shocking there might be a passage of scripture in our Bibles that John, the author of the book of John, didn't actually write. With all sorts of implications. And so if I were you, I'd say, I need some evidence right now. And, and that's what I would be asking, and so that's what I want to do, beginning with this. The evidence for what I am, I'm bringing to you uh, would start like this. Number one, this story is missing from all Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century. So we've got a bunch of manuscripts of John's Gospel. There isn't one that shows up that includes this story prior to the 5th century. This was written in the 1st century. Seconds, number two. All the earliest church fathers omit this passage in commenting on John, and they pass directly on to John, from John chapter 7, 52, to John chapter 8, verse 12. Number three. No Eastern church father cites this passage before the 10th century when dealing with this gospel. And number four, when the story does start to appear in manuscripts of John, it shows up in a whole bunch of different places. Like in some manuscripts, the story shows up after John chapter 7, 36. And in other places, it shows up in John chapter 7, 44. And in other places, it actually shows up back in chapter 21 after verse 25. And in one manuscript, it actually shows up in Luke's gospel. Shows up, you're like, wait, it's in John's gospel. No, it shows up in Luke's gospel after Luke 21, 38. Number five, the style and the vocabulary of this passage is totally unlike any part of other part of John's gospel. And so it would be very odd for him stylistically to, to, to even write this. And just to put this in comparison, if you've ever had your significant other say, hey, uh, like, guys, if you, had a, if you ever had a significant other and you say, hey, can you send a text to my, my friend? And, and she sends a text to your friend and it's got all these type of weird emoticons and like kissy face and winky face. You're like, your friend's probably like, Okay, he didn't, he didn't write this. Somebody else wrote, This is not how he talks. Okay, that's what like, like theologians and commentators and scholars are saying. This entire little passage, totally unlike the way John talks throughout the rest of his gospel. And, and so, if this is true, if this is the evidence, if John did not write this passage, then can we actually trust John's gospel? Because that's the question. That's where we're going right now. And if we can't trust John's gospel... Can we trust the Bible? 
which, oh, by the way, the, the very first printed Greek New Testament that, that came off the printing press was in 1516 by a man named Erasmus, which means for 1500 years, came off the printing press, first one ever printed, 1516. So 1500 years prior to that, all the manuscripts, all the manuscripts of the biblical books in the Bible were just passed down to us through handwritten copies. Which, oh, by the way, none of those first original manuscripts are known to exist. So we have 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. We've never actually discovered any of the originals ever written. You're like, so then we have copies and, and copies and copies. And people say, can we, can we trust what the Bible says? And this question leads us naturally to a, an area of study known as textual criticism. And there are semester-long classes that dive into this field of study known as textual criticism. And I'm up here, and I've got to try to give you a crash course in just a handful of minutes uh, based on the time that we have today. And the big idea, I would say, if I could give you t the main idea behind textual criticism, really comes down to two things. Uh, you apply this by examining, number one, the number of copies against themselves, and number two, by the dating for those copies. So, for example, if we only had two copies of John's Gospel in existence, say we only had two copies, and one of the copies has the story of the woman caught in adultery, and the other doesn't have the story of the woman caught in adultery, we'd be like, I don't know what to do, right? It's like 50-50. But let's say you had 10 copies of John's Gospel, nine of them don't include the story, and only one does. You'd be like, hmm, that's kind of odd, right? Nine don't include the story of the woman caught in adultery, but one does. Oh, by the way, all the oldest ones don't include it. And the one that does is actually, like, the most recent one. That's, that's how, like, in a, in a very concise way, how, how the methodology is applied for textual criticism. And you can apply this, uh, honestly, against other pieces of ancient literature. For example, uh, Thucydides, the history of Thucydides, it was written 460 to 400 B.C. We have eight copies today in existence, the earliest dated to 900 A.D., 1,300 years after he wrote them. But it's a classic work of ancient literature. And the reason I mention that is because the great uh, Bible teacher, F.F. F. Bruce, he says, let me just be really clear for a second. No scholar would listen to an argument that the authenticity of Thucydides or Herodotus is in doubt because the earliest manuscripts of their works were written 1,300 years later than the original. End quote. But there's others. Like Aristotle. He wrote his poetics around 343 B.C. The earliest copy was dated A.D. 1100. 343 B.C., earliest copy, A.D. 1100. 1,400 years later, after he wrote it, 49 manuscripts are in existence. Then you have Julius Caesar, his Gallic Wars, written between uh, 58 and 50 B.C. There are only 10 copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars in existence. The oldest a thousand years after he wrote it. Then you have Tacitus, the Roman historian. He wrote the annals of imperial Rome in AD 116. His first six books exist in one single manuscript dated to AD 850. 
Books 11 through 16, also found in one single manuscript, dated to the 11th century. Books 7 to 10, lost. Then you have Josephus. Josephus, the Jewish historian in the first century, he wrote uh, the Jewish War. Nine copies of his Greek manuscript are, are, have been discovered. The oldest one written in the 10th century. He wrote it in the first century. Oldest one was written in the 10th century. But there is perhaps no one that has greater manuscript authority than Homer in his classic work of literature known as the Iliad. There's 600 plus copies in existence. Now, the reason the number of copies is significant, as I already stated, um, is in this field of textual criticism, the more copies you have, the more comparables that you have, um, the more data points you have. You've got 600 copies of Homer's work, the Iliad. You can take all 600 copies, lay them out against each other, and if most of them all say the same thing, you'd be like, well, it probably is pretty darn close near to the original, even though we don't have the original. That's, that's the idea. And also, the more copies you have, if they all do agree with one another, right, the greater probability. The greater probability. For example, you play the game telephone. If I were in a room like this, there's 70, 80 people. If I were just, just a one-sentence message, if I started with Graham and we worked it all the way around, just one sentence, okay, and we got it back here, and it actually said the right thing, which you know it wouldn't, you'd be like, okay, well, let's do it 600 and some odd times and see what happens, right? Homer's Iliad has over 600 plus copies. And if all 600, if, if, if there's a high percentage, okay, that they agree, then you'd say, okay, like, they probably are pretty authentic. Now, I bring up Homer's The Iliad. I, I, I mention the fact that no other ancient piece of literature has more manuscript authority and 600 plus copies uh, uh, than you know where I'm going. Because as of 2009, and, and every year there's always a couple more discovered, as of 2009, um, the Bible has to count 20,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, 5,600 of the entire Bible. Some of the oldest are dated, uh, the oldest fragments are dated to the first century when the New Testament was written, within decades of the originals. Um, so it's not like the, the Bible just comes in first. It's like the Bible just crushes everything else. I, I, I don't know what other word would be better than to say crush as far as comparables go, but it really does crush. Um, and however, there are liberal scholars. Okay, I'll give you the counter argument because you might have an atheist friend and he'll be like, he'll love to quote somebody like Bart Ehrman, a, a liberal theologian. I, I'll put theologian in air quotes because I like I don't know how this guy uh, would even be in that category. But he came out in 2005 with uh, a book called Misquoting Jesus. And in this book, he said, regardless of the 20,000 copies of the New Testament that there exist, are in existence, regardless of the 5,600 copies of the entire Bible, you can't trust it. Because in his book, Misquoting Jesus, he alleges that within those biblical manuscripts, there are so many errors that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. You, you can't trust the Bible because you can't accurately reconstruct what the Bible says. And the main idea that Urban argues is that there are some 300,000 to 400,000 variants within the New Testament. Which, at that point, you're like, there's three to 400,000 variants within the New Testament? Yep. That's what Bart argues. It's like, wow, it's over. Can't trust John's gospel, can't trust the Bible. Until you actually define what a variant is. You see, for Bart... 
Anything can be a variant, including a spelling difference, which, oh, by the way, is the largest category of variants that he measured. Uh, John is typically spelled J-O-H-N. You can also spell John J-O-N. In other words, any time within those 20,000 fragments that we have in the New Testament that John is spelled differently, and I'm just using John as an example, you can use a different name, right? That's, a, that's, that's the one variant. Like, what do you mean by one variant? Like, it's, it's one variant, so anytime it's spelled in a different place, it's, it's like, are you counting it once? No, any single time. If it's, if it's different in one manuscript, if it's different in another manuscript, so the count is going up really fast, really quickly. Any difference in spelling counts as a variance. So when you actually break down the percentages, 75% of the variance that, that Bart argues are attributed to nothing more than actually difference in spelling or spelling errors. And the second largest category deals with synonyms, such as referring to, say, Jesus. You might refer to, in some texts, Jesus as Lord. In, in other texts, it might use uh, the pronoun he. That's a variant? Yep, that's a variant. In other words, when you actually break down the three to 400,000 variants that Bart says exist in the New Testament, which is the basis why he believes you can't accurately reconstruct the New Testament, it turns out that that's not really the case, which is why Craig Bloomberg, another renowned New Testament scholar, says that the truth is you can, within 97 to 99% accuracy, reconstruct beyond any reasonable doubt the New Testament, which I think is kind of amazing. Because if you go back to the critical argument, like, say, the game Telephone, the more transmissions that you have, the greater the chance for miscommunication. That's, that's the thing, right? The, the more copies you have, the greater the chance there's going to be some error. And yet when all of them are agreeing within 97 and 99% of the time, that's pretty remarkable. So here's what I usually say. If, if you're going to reject the Bible, then you need to be consistent and intellectually honest enough that you also have to reject the philosophy department or the history department or the literature department at your Marxist state communist universities. You do, if you actually want to be intellectually honest. And the point is, this book, this book is the word of God. This book has been accurately copied. No, we don't have any of the original manuscripts, but it has been accurately copied and faithfully translated. And the other thing I really appreciate like, about our Bibles is that when there is a question, it notes it. Like, it's not trying to be, like, deceitful or manipulative. It's like right there. The earliest manuscripts don't include chapter 7, 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. I appreciate that. It's refreshing, right? It's not like how you turn on the news. I'm Joe Decker reporting live from downtown Minneapolis. We've got a lot of these protesters behind us, but they're mostly peaceful. And the whole, like, city is in flames, and we find out there's billions of dollars of damage. See, we don't get this type of intellectual honesty. You don't get it when you turn on the news. I love it that we actually get it. It's right there in the Bible. Earliest manuscripts don't include this passage. Furthermore, when it comes to this specific passage of the woman caught in adultery, both D.A. Carson and Bruce Metzger think this story probably happened. In other words, they, they think this story was a real event of Jesus' life, that the story circulated and then later was put into John's gospel. Metziger says, the account has all the earmarks of historical veracity, end quote. Carson says, there is little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred, end quote. You quoted Carson at the beginning, yeah? 
Carson doesn't think John wrote this. That's correct. But Carson thinks the story happened. Yes. Carson does not think John wrote the story that we're going to look at today, but he does believe the story happened. And so, for that reason, the good news is you get two sermons today for the price of one. Let's jump into our text. It says this, verse 53, They went each to his own house, verse 1, chapter 8, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and he taught them, and the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. So here's what's going on. They're at the temple. Jesus is teaching. And in the middle of his preaching, he gets ambushed. He gets ambushed. And I'll tell you right now, as someone who regularly teaches and preaches, as a pastor here at the church, uh, this is usually my worst nightmare. Okay? This, this is my worst nightmare. My worst nightmare, imagine you've got to go give a speech, and then, like, your computer dies, and your notes, like, disintegrate, and you're totally blank, and you're in front of everyone, and everything you've rehearsed is just out of your mind, or there's some gross interruption that happens or throws you off. Like, that's, that's my worst nightmare. I've had nightmares where I'm preaching here, and, like, animals from the zoo are in here. I don't know why they're in here. And yet I decide in my dream to keep trying to preach. I'm like, all right, I'm still going to hold your attention, right? Because I'm trying to be so dynamic that, that you don't lose focus. Just ignore the elephant right there. Um, like, this is my worst nightmare. And this is exactly what's happening right now. They grab this woman. He's, he's teaching. He's preaching. They bring her up front and center in the room. Imagine. Bring her up front and center. Totally interrupt him. Totally cut him off. They effectively hijack the whole thing. Total setup, by the way. But notice in the story what's missing. You see it? Or rather, who's missing? The woman is there. Where's the guy? The, the girl is there. The guy's not there. Did you see that? Because I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure when it comes to adultery, it's it's not like MMA or boxing. It's not a solo sport. Like, like when it comes to adultery, you normally, it normally just requires you to have at least two participants. Not to mention the timing's kind of strange here, isn't it? Like they, they caught her, but how did they catch her? How did they catch her? Like are these guys like a bunch of perverts? They're just like, all right, like, you know, we're, we're watching. Oh, there she, oh, she came in, right? Oh, there, oh, let's go. I'm like, how do they even know? And uh, we already know this is a setup for Jesus. Almost makes you wonder if they didn't also set her up. And so we've got all these different characters, right? We've got the woman who is caught in adultery and is presumably guilty. Uh, you have presumably the man who is equally guilty, but he doesn't get caught. He's not even in the story. And the reason I point that out is because mm, be, just, just because you, you don't get caught doesn't mean you got away with it. 
For, for instance, some sins are, are less obvious. Other, others are more obvious. Take, for example, I don't know, um, gluttony. That's probably in the category of more obvious. That's usually why pastors never dare to bring up gluttony. They don't, they can't, you can't bring up gluttony because then everyone's like, oh yeah, that person's a glutton. Yeah, they're just, they're glutton. And I would say, well, make sure you worry about your own self first. I think we're going to see that theme emerge in just a second. So you got the woman, you've got the man, and then, oh, by the way, you've got the religious people. Uh, they're, the, they're the hypocrites. They are, they are the hypocrites, they are the busybodies, they are the gossips, they are the ones who overlook their own sins, their own faults, who love to point out the faults of everyone else, like this woman, and then you've got Jesus. Which usually, in every instance, there's always one person, and they're like, yeah, nothing in this story is convicting at all. Not, not anything at all. I'm not like any of these characters. If I had to pick, I'm, I'm probably just like the Jesus character, which at that point, I'm like, yeah, you're probably just reading the story wrong, like you are. But they bring her forward, hijack the whole service. Verse 5, it says, Now in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Adultery was punishable by death in the Old Testament, which is why there usually weren't very many repeat offenders. Some of you are just now getting that. There's not. There's not many, very many repeat offenders because you get killed the first time. And so it says this in verse 6. They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. I'll just say it right now in case it comes up a small group. We have no idea. No idea. No idea. No one knows. But he bent down and he writes... And once again, it says in verse 6, they said this to test him. And, and some people will do this. Some people love to test God. They love to correct God. They love to lecture God. God, this is how you should operate. This is how you shouldn't operate. As if they're the teacher and he's the pupil. This is these religious folks. Yeah, they're, they're lovely. Verse 7, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Uh, this was the setup from, a start, from the start. This was a setup from the start. Uh, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to trick him. They're, they're trying to trap him. Um, but I love what he says. Oh, you guys want to kill her? Yeah, sure. Yeah, let's execute her right now. Um, here's a stone, and here's a stone, and here's a stone. And uh, why don't we do this? Uh, who's going to throw first? How about the first one, the first one of you that doesn't have any sin you throw? They're playing checkers. He's playing chess. And then he goes to the woman. He's like, uh, where did they all go? Are any of them here? Any of them here? No, no, Lord. No, none of them are here, huh? Hmm, interesting. 
No one, Lord, she says. No one, Lord. And in case you don't think this is significant, that she refers to Jesus as Lord, just keep in mind there is no instance ever of Judas ever calling or referring to Jesus as Lord. No one, Lord. And it's for that it's for that reason, I think there's real transformation that has or is taking place in her life. And, and he says to her, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, go and sin no more. Huge sentence with lots of implications. And I want to break it down, starting with this phrase, go and sin no more. And what I think we have in this story, the story of the woman caught in adultery, it's a story that really it's a story that really hits close to home for most of us. Not because we've all committed adultery, as in the actual act itself, but because my guess is, at some point or another, we have every single one of us in our hearts. Or, or have you not heard Jesus say in Matthew 5, 27? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we're all like her. To some degree or another, we're, we're all like her. We're all guilty. And if you say, nope, not me, I'm not guilty of that, well then you're guilty of lying. <laughs> but, but, but let's focus on, on his command. Go and sin no more. This is important because today we live in a culture that would tell this woman, sweetie, you've got nothing to apologize for. You were just exploring your body. That's totally fine. It's nothing to be ashamed of. After all, your body, your choice. That's how society operates. It's perfectly normal for people to date and fornicate. What you do doesn't matter. <coughs> but Jesus is very clear about this. He says, go and sin no more. How judgmental of him. How dare he tell her that what she was doing was a sin in the first place. But this is important because he doesn't say to the woman, I don't condemn you. So it doesn't matter if you commit adultery. It doesn't matter if you keep fornicating with your boyfriends. It's your body. As long as you're happy, I support you. He says, go and sin no more. And he doesn't tell her this because she fears stoning. I don't think that's the reason. He tells her this because she has met God. And when you meet God, God changes things in your life. When you meet God, he rescues and saves you by his grace. When you meet God, he sets you free to obey him. He sets you free from sin and free from death. And the truth is, all of us are just like this woman to some degree or another. All of us need Jesus to forgive us just like this woman. Go and sin no more. And this comes after he tells her, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So we just broke down the, the second phrase. I'm going to break down the first phrase. I think there's a lot there to it. He says, I, I don't condemn you. And what I hear a lot of people will say, both in and outside the church, it's, it's very different than what Jesus tells the woman. And it usually goes something along the lines of, I really struggle with forgiving myself. 
Have any of you guys heard that before, that phrase? Only one person. Okay, I was totally off there. Well, let me just tell you. Apparently in our culture, a lot of people will use that phrase, I really struggle with forgiving myself. Apparently, even in the church, it's actually very common, except this church. No one hears it there. But, but that's, that's the thing, right? People will say, I really struggle with forgiving myself. And the reason I mention this is because that this way of talking and thinking, it isn't biblical. But, but nonetheless, it has seeped into the modern Christian culture. And, and I just don't like it. I don't like it because the Bible doesn't talk this way. The Bible doesn't talk about the need for self-forgiveness. And that's because to have forgiveness, you have to have one person who has been wronged and one person who did the wronging. In case I went too fast. To have forgiveness, you have to have one person who's been wronged and one person who's done the wronging. For example, um, and I'll paraphrase this briefly. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, 8 to 10, Paul, he's found the Corinthians at fault. They've sinned, and he wrote this really tough letter, uh, said some really hard things to them. Uh, he summons them. Listen, you need to repent. You need to stop doing what you're doing. And they do, and he forgives them, and he doesn't hold it against them. In, in other words, they saw their wrong, they apologized, and they received forgiveness. And, and then he goes on in verse 10, he says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief leads to salvation. It leads to life. Worldly grief leads to death. And I point this out because if you feel that you need to forgive yourself, I would submit to you that's not what you need. And that's because the issue isn't about you forgiving yourself, but rather the need to transition between feeling worldly grief over sin in your life to godly grief, and from godly grief to freedom. And that's because what you need isn't something that you can give to yourself like forgiveness, but rather it's something that only Christ can give to you. Or to say it another way, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What I find is that so much of this sort of self-forgiveness talk is a facade for false humility, which is why it really grinds my gears when people talk about how they just really need to forgive themselves. And I'm like, you don't need to forgive yourselves because that's not a biblical concept. And that's because you're not God and you're not the judge of the universe. And this is a very arrogant way to speak because what you're saying in effect is, when you speak about your need to forgive yourself, is that what Jesus did for you on the cross, it wasn't enough. What Jesus did in his life, and his death, and his burial, and his resurrection, that wasn't adequate. And the truth of the matter is, you have absolutely no right to say this. You have absolutely no right to be your own judge. And you have absolutely no right to take the not, not guilty verdict obtained for you by the blood of your murdered Savior and then flush it down the toilet as if it held all the value of a pet goldfish. Think about just how crazy it is. Think about, you're, you're in a courtroom. God finds you not guilty, for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, on the basis of the sacrifice of his only son, and then you say, I refuse it. You say, it's not sufficient enough. It, it's, it's just not enough. You say, I, I need to first forgive myself. I'll tell you right now, like, if I'm there in the courtroom, I'm just like yelling, will you please shut up? Because it's so fake. 
It's so pretend. It's, it's phony humility. You see, for the person, their struggle isn't with self-forgiveness. Their struggle is with their own arrogance in believing that their opinion is more important than what God says about them. God says to the woman, Jesus says to the woman, neither do I condemn you. I mean, it's almost verbatim to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.1. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The very idea that you could take God's place in judging yourself is delusional. In which a person essentially says to God in these moments, God, <clears throat> it's Joe here. Chaplain Major Joe Dacrion, actually. God, please excuse yourself as the judge of the universe. Please, can you uh, move, move aside, get out of my way? Because I need to forgive myself. <laughs> Could you imagine? If that ever happens, please stand very far away from me. I don't want you to uh, yeah, get struck by lightning or something crazy like that. No, but what this boils down to is this. It's a failure to understand and trust God. A failure to believe in the promises of God. Because if he says, your debt is paid. If he says you're forgiven, that's the end of it. And you humbly accept his verdict. You step off the judge's seat. You let God be God. You let God do what God does because he's already going to anyways. He doesn't need your permission. And the implication is this. Some of you guys have messed up really, really bad. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. This morning, last night, you know, and... And I'm here to say, regardless of how much you've screwed up, regardless of how much you've sinned, no matter how wicked you've been, if he says to you what he says to this woman, then you can confidently know that's the end of it. You can confidently trust that you are forgiven. If you belong to Jesus, you are forgiven. You are free and you are no longer under condemnation. If you belong to Jesus, what matters is not what you say about yourself. What matters is what he says about you. So as the team comes, I want to pray for us. Lord, we love you. We love your word. It is mind-blowing how trustworthy it is. It is mind-blowing how in your sovereignty you have preserved the, the copies of this ancient book that you've written for us. This book is trustworthy because you're trustworthy. I don't know why that's a surprise to us. And Lord, for some of us here, some of us were battling with different sins. Uh, we, we have uh, been arrogant, um, prideful, uh, belittling individuals who mock your grace. We don't deserve it. And yet, Lord, to know that just like this woman, I mean, we're, we're, we might as well just be sitting there just as guilty as she is, because we are. For those of us who know you, for those of us who have been saved by you, that we're forgiven. And for those of us who struggle, especially maybe because the past, our past lives, Lord, um, I pray that we would begin right now to experience the theology 
the theology behind the words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It wouldn't just be like something we hear, something that we experience. I pray for those of us who just need encouragement right now, who struggle, Lord. Who struggle with, with these ideas like, oh, i got to forgive myself. Because, Lord, we can't. Like, this is only something you can do. And if you've done it, then you've done it. I thank you for doing it. For doing what only you can do. Therefore, go and sin no more. Help us to live lives of purity and holiness and righteousness. To love you by obedience to your commands to us. We pray this in your great name. Amen.